Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, as was mentioned, we are studying the book of 1 Peter starting today. If you would turn there, um, I'm going to say a few words about this great book. Um, it's a small book, short book compared to what you're used to, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, one writer called it the jewel of the New Testament. It's got some wonderful truths in it. It's easy to read. It appeals to the human heart, one writer said. And it's filled with practical, get this, it's filled with practical and relevant answers of how to relate to a world that is hostile toward Christianity. That is the context of 1 Peter. The year was 64 AD. An arsonist had somehow set fire to the imperial, imperial city of Rome. Historians tell us that the fire was brought under control, excuse me, before the fire was brought under control, four districts of the great city of Rome had burned to the ground. Historians also tell us that it just so happens that the property most affected happened to be an area that Nero wanted to build his imperial palace. Imperial palace. So suspicion has always been that Nero somehow started that fire. For that purpose, you want to rebuild, he liked to build things, and to build, you have to tear down in some places, and that's what historians say he did. He played the fiddle while Rome burned. You've heard that story. I'm not sure of the truth of that, but that one you've certainly heard. In fact, people tried to put the fire out, and um, they were hindered in putting it out, and so many people lost their lives. Many businesses and homes were destroyed as a result of that fire. Nero didn't like the suspicion that people had about him, so he tried to hinder, uh, to stop that and pointed it toward Christians. He said, no, it's the Christians that did it. You know, that group of people that we all hate anyway, that group of people that we don't trust anyway because they're sort of like the Jews in some ways, and we don't like the Jews either. They're the people that kind of meet and uh, they don't worship our God. They're not loyal in the truest sense to Caesar in terms of worshiping Caesar. They're people that really don't fit in. They have morals that don't really go along with the norms of our society, they would say. They don't seem to fit in, in in any way. And they're worshiping a dead Jewish carpenter. They're unpatriotic and they don't like all of our gods and goddesses and all the things that are important to us. Oh, and you know, they also, they meet in secret sometimes and they do this thing called the Lord's Supper. That's where they cannibalize people. They eat babies and maybe even Gentiles. So many rumors around Christians meeting in these places. And persecution began right after that. It already had been going on somewhat, but it came with a flood. It sort of just came together and was more focused and directed at believers. And so a new crisis on the horizon for Christianity, um, always under some persecution, but now getting more intense. And about this time, a fisherman turned church uh, leader sits down with his quill and writes the book of 1 Peter in that context. Because he knew that Christians were going to be asking the question, how do we live in the midst of this persecution this hostility toward us? And that's the same question that I think we're starting to ask as believers in the 21st century. 
I've been pointing this out to you several times in several different ways, and you read it in the papers and, and all those other sources, and there are attempts to make laws that silence the biblical view. There are attempts to make laws, and not in our country, maybe I told you last week in Canada, to make it hate speech, to stand up and say anything with any authority from the Bible. That's hate speech. Regarding morals or sexual immorality or any of those topics, we're starting to understand what it means to be mocked and maligned and misunderstood and marginalized. That's becoming... It was kind of foreign to us for a long time, but now it's becoming more, hmm, normal places, more normal, like other places in the world where it really has been normal, like Russia and China and North Korea and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and some of those countries. We're starting to identify more and more, well, that's what they've been going through for a long time. We're starting to see our world changing all around us and we're starting to realize that trying to be a comfortable, culturally acceptable, at the same time a committed Christian, those three aren't going to go together. I want to be comfortable, I want to be culturally acceptable, but to be a committed Christian may not make that possible. The world is changing. Erwin Luther says, the day of the casual Christian is over. It will no longer be possible to drift along, hoping that no tough choices will have to be made. It will now cost something to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He goes on to write, never before in American history has it been so important for the Christian to be connected to a believing church body, participating with other believers in worship, encouragement, instruction, prayer, discipleship training, and gospel outreach, because the darker the night, the more important every single candle becomes. And so the basic question is to the believers in First Peter and the believers in the 21st century is how shall we live? How shall we respond? And that's what Peter does in First Peter. There's a mission agency that monitors um, the People's Republic of China and the church in China. And they asked thousands of believers in China, said, what is it that drew you to faith in Christ? What drew you to faith in Christ? I mean, you pay a price to be a Christian in this culture. You are demoted, you're persecuted, you are marginalized, sometimes even going to prison in this country. But what is it that drew you to Christ? This agency reported that many answers were given, but the one answer that was given most often was the joy. The joy in the lives of believers with whom they came in contact, such joy that it made them envious and then curious and then eventually receptive. That's what Peter's going to talk about. And so Peter's going to write in his first letter in the face of testing, don't panic. Don't get angry. Don't get resentful. But notice in 4.13, chapter 4, verse 13. 
If you are reviled for the name of Christ, 4.13 says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are, excuse me, 4.13, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing, 4.13 says. Go down to verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Keep on rejoicing. If you revile the name of Christ, you are blessed. And blessed means you are filled with a sense of satisfied joy. 1 Peter 5, 12. Flip over to chapter 5. I have written to you briefly. 5, 12. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Notice, stand firm in it. You are people who have been redeemed by grace. You belong to a gracious God. So I've written to you that in the midst of your changing world, don't lose sight of his grace or stop living out the gospel of grace. But that word grace is huge in 1 Peter. Huge. And so thinking of that context and thinking about the words of 1 Peter, we come now this morning to this book and I want to take you to the text this morning and start looking at that. If you will turn to chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to look at verse 1, verse 1a, Peter. You say, well, we have got a long time in 1 Peter, if that's the first verse we're going to look at. But that's what I want to show you this morning. Why should we listen to this man? Why should we listen to this man? Why should we take time to study a book of the Bible, an epistle that he has written? Why should we read this letter? What is it about him that makes him qualified to speak into our lives? That's what I want to do. One writer said, if you could picture a fourth grade student who constantly is raising his hand in class, even though he has nothing to say, and many times what he says shouldn't have been said, he said, that's Peter. That would be Peter. If you read the gospel accounts, you can easily understand why John MacArthur in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, says that Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. If you read from Howard Hendricks that said this, Peter opened his mouth only to change feet. Peter was a disciple who rushed into places where angels feared to tread. He would go there. He was inquisitive, he was impulsive, and he was daring. A lot of people find fault with him because he sunk. Remember that when the storm came and he sees Jesus out over the water, he gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and then he eventually sinks. But we have to remember this, that Peter saw Jesus. Peter is the only one that got out of the boat in the storm to walk toward Jesus. He's the only one that did that. The rest were holding onto their seat cushions in the boat, afraid of sinking. That's Peter. Well, we find fault with him for denying the Lord in the courtyard. At least he was a disciple who followed Jesus into the courtyard. Where are they taking him? The rest had already fled. But he was there. Wasn't a pretty scene for him, but the point is, he was there. No disciple, one writer says, no disciple speaks as often as Peter does, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter no disciple is corrected more than the Peter, and Peter is the only disciple to have tried to correct the Lord, which was not a good idea. No one verbally denied Christ more publicly than Peter, and yet no disciple confessed Christ more boldly than Peter. He was a fisherman. He was unpredictable. 
He seemed to be able to balance every success he had with a failure. It's kind of like back and forth. You know, you kind of love him for this. He, he, he is so us. His flaws are so evident. You know, Paul's a little intimidating, both pre and post Christ. Paul's a little intimidating. Paul, greatest Christian probably ever lived in the history of the world. But Peter is he's just kind of out there. You see his flaws, and you see what he became. That's the reason he uses the word grace so much, because he needed it so much. He needed grace so much, like we all do. That's why I think he's so relatable to us. When Peter was born, his parents gave him the name of Simon. Simeon in the Hebrew, but Simon was his name. His father was John, uh, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. You hear that sometimes. We know he had a brother named Andrew. We know he grew up in a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. It was a pretty successful business, um, most likely. Uh, seems to be that way anyway. He had two other brothers, uh, not his brothers, but two other brothers who were partners with him, James and John. They all worked in this business, and all four of them would eventually leave the business and follow Jesus. And it was lucrative. I mean, Peter had a house in Capernaum. He had a house and his mother-in-law was able to stay in that house with him. That is where Jesus came to heal his mother-in-law. So Peter was married. 1 Corinthians 9 even says that. Paul says, uh, uh, Peter has a wife. He's taken a wife along with him on the missionary journeys. So contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church might want to say, Peter could not be the first pope. He was married. He probably did not have children, at least at this particular time when he follows Jesus, because there's no indication that they traveled with them. <clears throat> Gospels point out that Peter's biggest problem was being consistent. That's it, just being consistent, vacillating, shifting. And so to help with that, when Jesus first meets him, he tells him, listen, I'm going to give you a new name. It's going to be Peter. Petros means rock, something you're not. Gonna, this is going to be your new name. Simon, you're going to become Peter. Cephas in the Aramaic is also Peter. Cephas, or uh, I say this because you see three different names, Simon, Cephas, and Peter. It's all the same person. Peter and Cephas are Aramaic for Cephas. Peter is the Greek. Petros means rock. That's what I want you to become. Peter had to carry that name around with him. This is what I'm to become. This is what I'm to, had to, probably had to do a lot of self-talk, right? This is what I'm to become. Firm and consistent as a rock. That's what I want you to become, Peter. And you can almost trace his progress through, this, through the Gospels. Simon. When Jesus was upset with him, Simon. My mother used to say, Rodney. And she was mad at me, you know, about something. And it's like, Simon. Simon Peter, sometimes we call Simon Peter an indication of the past and the future. That's all of us, right? This is what I am, this is what I want to become. John always calls him Simon Peter. The apostle John always calls him Simon Peter. Almost like, you ain't there yet, buddy. <laughs> Simon Peter. And then finally, you're going to see it's just Peter. It's just Peter. The one that's going to preach incredible sermon. The, 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 the main character of the book of Acts in the first half of the book of Acts, eight chapters of the book of Acts, uh, ten chapters of the book of Acts. 
It's Peter, all about Peter and the other apostles. It's all about Peter there. And then the one that wrote First and Second Peter and had a lot of influence in the Gospel of Mark as well. So you can trace his progress through the Gospels by what he's called, rather how he's referred to. I'm just going to take you through the Bible this morning, through the Gospels, and just show you some snapshots. Every time I bring up a snapshot to you, it's a scene, I'm just going to put a word there that kind of characterizes what's going on with Peter. Because I want you to understand why we should listen to this guy. I mean, it is inspired, it is God-breathed, it is God working through the human author, Peter, and that's enough, but I just want you to understand why. Why Peter, the rock, is worth our time to study, especially speaking into a context where people are fearful and concerned and seeing changes all around them. Let me start you out this morning in Luke chapter 5, turn there. I'm going to put the, the, the term job change, job change, okay? That summarizes what this is about or part of what this is about. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I like this passage. It says, now, hap- now it happened, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were, were washing their nets. So we're by the Sea of Galilee, and we are, fishermen are there washing their nets. And Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat sitting out on the water, talking to the crowd on the, on the shore. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So at this point, Simon Peter gets a little frustrated with Jesus. Two reasons. One, you don't catch fish in the Sea of Galilee with nets in deep water. Why? You don't go out in deep water and try to cast nets because nets, when they go into deep water, have no way to enclose the fish. The fish just swim under the nets in deep water. There's nothing to, 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 to catch them, no way to catch them in deep water. So he's a little frustrated with Jesus, a little frustrated they want to go out in deep water in the middle of the day. Fish have fish are gone way down. They're not even going to be near the nets when they're thrown out. And so he says that in verse 5, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. In fact, he's probably thinking, why don't you just stick to preaching and let the professionals do the fishing? But I will do as you say and let down the nets, in verse 5 says. When he did this, notice the result, verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so they began to sink. It's very frightening to be in a boat that is sinking, I'm sure. But you know what's more frightening? To be in the boat with God. And that's what he does. When Simon saw that, he fell at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me for I'm a sinful man. He knew only God could do something like this. I, a sinful man, in the presence of deity, 
depart from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I have an overwhelming sense of unworthiness on Peter's part. I, in the presence of God, that's more, I'd rather sink than be in a boat with God. In the presence of God. I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and his companions because of the catch of the fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were his partners. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Matthew's account says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You're no longer going to fish for these little cold-blooded creatures. You're going to fish for men. I'm going to make you into that. Matthew says, I will make you a fisher of men. Second snapshot, go to Luke chapter 9. This is called nonsense. Luke chapter 9, the caption, nonsense. You've got three inner core disciples, three of the disciples' names you see a lot of times always together, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. You always sort of see those three names together. They have gone up the, this nearby hill. Um, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration after what happens there. That's why they call it the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the scene here in Luke chapter 9. Notice in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, James, and, Peter John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So they go up to the mountain to pray. And verse 32 tells us Jesus prays, the others go to sleep. You see that in verse 32. But while Jesus is praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face becomes different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah. It's almost like the, uh, his, his humanity is rolled back and his deity is shining forth on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah are there and appearing in the glory. We're speaking to, of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Peter wakes up, verse 32. He saw his glory and the two men standing with him. He wakes up and makes this discovery. Garments shining like the noonday sun, other accounts say. Peter, of course, shows, uh, <clears throat> Peter, of course, one author writes, shows disregard for the situation. He, by, say, uh, uh, by ignoring the fact that who he's talking to, because this is what he says in verse 33, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he is saying. You know what he did there, folks? He lowered Jesus to Moses and Elijah level. You follow me? This is what all the cults do, by the way. This is what all the cults do. They lower Jesus to just a man. They lower Jesus to just another good teacher. That's what Peter was doing. He didn't know what he meant to do that, but that's what he was doing. That's what he was saying. That's why he's speaking nonsense. This is not on the same level, those two guys. He wants, he wants to make a permanent dwelling for them. He liked building program here. He wants to make a permanent dwelling for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. 
While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. He's not a mere man. He is my son. He is God of God, essence of God, God in human flesh. Listen to him. Nice way of saying, stop running your mouth and listen, Peter. Right? Another snapshot, go to Matthew chapter 16. This is one where Peter shows some incredible insight. Matthew chapter 16, insight, insightful. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, This is verse 13 of Matthew 16. He was asking his disciples, now get this, who do people say that that the Son of Man is? Who are people saying I am? Who am I? And they said, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, and you might be thinking, oh no, not Peter. But he says something very insightful. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only way you can know that is God revealing that to you. Peter, God gave you that insight. Peter, only God could revoke your heart to say those words. Only God could enable you to believe that and say that. God gave you that insight. Well, everybody else thinks I'm somebody else. You know who I am. Because God, and Peter, you are actually speaking God's words right now. Because God gave you those words. And so Peter has this insight. A mountaintop experience, hearing Jesus say that to him. My tongue has been used in such a way to speak for God about the nature of Jesus But the problem is, two verses later, Peter, who was filled with insight, becomes Peter filled with arrogance. Go down to verse 21. This is arrogance. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, same chapter, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to really rebuke him, the one you just said was God, the Messiah. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I can't imagine what that scene looked like. But Lord, step over here for a moment. Listen, this talk of dying, this will never happen to you. Trust me. Trust me. I'm that disciple with great insight. Trust me. That's not going to happen to you. You see in verse 23, Jesus says, you're Satan. He calls him Satan. You're a stumbling block to the divine plan of redemption. Why? Because your mind is captivated by your own interest and not God's, to summarize. In other words, you're letting your tongue, the same tongue that was used by God to be used now by Satan, you're getting in God's way and of God's plan. And you're going, doing what man wants, not what God wants. It, Satan does not want Jesus to go to Jerusalem and get on the cross. He does not want humanity redeemed. 
And this doesn't fit with Peter's plan either. Here's what Peter wants. Peter wants Judaism restored. He wants Judaism reformed. He wants Judaism revived. Peter wants uh, Judaism uh, synagogues to be filled with people and Jesus preaching to the crowds. Jesus sees the end of Judaism. Jesus sees the beginning of the church age. Peter doesn't see any of that. Jesus, Jesus doesn't see packed houses or packed synagogues. Jesus sees the nation yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You see what's going on here. It's you've got your ideas. That's not God's plan. That's Satan's plan and that's man's plan. But God's plan is so different. Hey, Peter, you've got to get with the plan. You got to get with the plan. See, there are no crosses in Peter's expectations. There's no, uh, there's no nails and no, no body, dead body, and there's no sealed tomb. Peter just wanted, you know, one miracle after another performed by Jesus. Peter wasn't looking forward to a grave. So. You know, it's so true. Isn't James right? The same mouth that blesses can be the same mouth that curses. The tongue is so dangerous. And we can all say things that are so right and so encouraging and so building up of others and the next moment be tearing things down, tearing people down or saying things that are wrong. The more available you are to God to speak his word, the more you're just as available to speak heresy. Notice in John 13, turn there for a moment, John 13. John 13, now that's the passage where Jesus is in the upper room washing feet, disciples' feet. And I'm just going to summarize a little bit of this, but that you know the chapter, John 13. He tells him, I'm going someplace and you can't go with me. But I want to follow you, Peter's going to say toward the end of that chapter. And he says, well, you can't. You won't be followed, you, maybe later, but not, you can't go where I'm going. After tonight ends, the Son of Man is going to suffer. And Jesus makes a statement in verse 37. He says, I will lay down my life for you. He says in Matthew 26, I don't care if all these others flee and run away. I will follow you. I don't care what they do. I will be the one. I will be the one who will stay with you. That's self-confidence. He's got confidence. I'm, I love Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want anything to happen to Jesus. I'll go with him. I won't desert him. The others may desert him, but I won't desert him. That's self-confidence. Then go to John chapter 18, five chapters later. This is failure. In John chapter 18, this is... Jesus' trials. He has a civil trial. He has religious trials in John chapter 18. He becomes before the religious authorities. He becomes before the government authorities. Peter's sort of following along in the back of the, in the back, in the crowds that are going from one, where one trial is to where another trial is and just waiting in the courtyard to find out what's going to happen. And you know how the story goes. Servant girl sees him and says, hey, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you with the one that's on trial right now in that room up there? 
And Peter denies it. See, Jesus had told him, Peter, you say you want to follow me. Before the rooster, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me three times. And that's what John 18 records. Peter being confronted that he knew Jesus and each time coming back and saying, I don't know the man. He even curses at one time, may God damn my soul if I'm lying to you. I don't know the man. I mean, he was adamant in his denial. You see it in John 17. You see it in, excuse me, John 18, verses 17, 27. You see it in Matthew's account. Matthew 26 account as well. I mean, this was failure. This was a huge failure. It says he went and wept bitterly afterwards. Here he is saying, I talk a big talk, but I can't even fulfill what I intend to do. He heard the rooster crow after the third denial, and he just breaks down, thinking I'm no good, I'm useless, I'm, I'm not usable to God. He, he just... In John chapter 20, turn there. In John chapter 20, he becomes an eyewitness to the resurrection. And this is important because the news reaches the disciples that the, tomb is, the, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty and Peter and John run, run toward there and, and when they arrive, verse 6 tells us they saw the linen wrapping, wrappings inside the tomb just still in place. Everything is not the idea that somebody trying to tear everything off and get out as fast as they could. It wasn't that kind of scene at all. It was just like everything was kind of neatly there. It wasn't like anybody tried to steal a body or anything like that. And Mark records this, I think is very interesting. When the angel appears in Mark 16.6, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. In Mark 16.6, the angel tells the women who came to attend to his body after he had risen from the dead, he says, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Most likely, Peter had just gone fishing after he failed so badly. But go tell his disciples and go tell Peter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we studied this a while back. Jesus made a resurrection appearance to Peter. It was important for Peter to know, to Peter, Peter to be restored, Peter to know that things were okay between him and Jesus. <laughs> and finally, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. This is not Simon Peter, not Simon, but Peter. He courageously, as a result of that resurrection appearance, as a result of that restoration, you see his courage as he stands up on the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verses 23. For example, he stands up and tells them that this nation murdered the Messiah that you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Verse 36 says he is both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is a sermon in which 3,000 people come to Christ. He surely did have the keys to the kingdom in, in terms of the gospel message that he could bring to the Jews and later in Cornelius' house to the Gentiles. This was a courageous man, not vacillating, but confident, not a man who was inconsistent, but now consistent speaking with conviction that this Jesus 
whom you rejected, you must repent and believe in him. Now turn to 1 Peter. 30 years, 30 years have passed in 1 Peter. 30 years have passed since Jesus, since Peter met the man who had the audacity to change his name. But he, this man changed much more than Peter's name. He reaches for his quill and he writes, he writes the book of 1 Peter. And I will tell you something, one of the major themes of this book is grace, 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 grace. Because he saw so much grace. But think about this. Did Peter learn anything about prayer? The one who fell asleep when Jesus prayed? Look at 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for, about you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon the Lord because he cares about you. Did Peter learn how damaging self-confidence can be? Notice chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves with humility. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, don't watch, he says, watch out. Don't be overconfident. Don't be self-reliant. Remain alert. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Did Peter learn anything about being hot-headed and calm and, clear, be a, and a clear thinker? Yes, he uses the word sober three times. Sober has to do with being clear-headed. He uses it in 113, 4.7, and 5.8. The believer in these difficult times needs to be sober, needs to be clear-thinking. The believer during these difficult times you're about to enter into, he says in those verses, he says you need to be clear-headed, calm, collective. Your perspective needs to be right. The gospel is what matters during this time, he is going to tell them. We need to represent the Lord during this time and his word and his message. He's going to say that. It's no time to panic. It's no time to spend our time complaining and over the loss of the things we've known in our culture and, and their culture as well. It's like one writer said, we sing rock of ages, but we live, live like we are clinging to a piece of driftwood. Isn't that true? We'll stand up and sing rock of ages cleft for me. And then live in this world like we are clinging to a piece of wood of a sunken ship. I think the biggest lessons we can learn, one writer said it this way, we can learn from 2,000 years of church history, is the church does not need to be appreciated in order to advance. Right? This writer goes on to say the church doesn't need freedom to be fruitful. Ask the Chinese believers, ask the Russian believers... Ask the Turkish believers, the Arabian believers. The church does not need a seat at the table of power in order to sow the seed of the gospel. We're not limited in being able to do that. Oh, they may throw me in jail. They may do lots of things in the future. Who knows? That won't stop the church. That won't stop the word. That won't stop anything. Because it's not man's work, it's, the God, it's God's work. I will build my church. I will build my church. I will use 
humble, flawed people like Peter to do it and other Peters who come along to do it. Another writer said, God is humbling the American church. Why? Because their hopes and petitions have been directed more toward Congress over the past 50 years than to Christ. And there's nothing wrong with Congress, and there's nothing wrong with petitioning Congress, and there's nothing wrong with, with um, running for Congress. And you should exercise every right you have in our society. But the Christian doesn't have to panic because those things don't work in our favor or complain or resent the Lord's purposes because that's what you're doing. God's providentially in charge. God's in control of everything. And he's the one that's moving the planet and every nation on the planet in the direction that he wants it to go so that one day his glory will fill the earth. That's the message that Peter wants to communicate. Don't give up hope. We have so much hope. So much hope. So you've got this 75-year-old man with calloused hands, gnarled fingers from years of tending nets and cleaning fish and rowing wooden oars, calmly writing to encourage the believer. And he mixes in forgiveness and grace and trust your souls to the one who can keep them safe. Entrust your hearts and your lives to the one who is faithful. And know that in a world gone wrong, he's going to make sure it all turns out right. I love the way he ends 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Hey, have you been changed by that grace? You heard me talk about it today. You've heard things I've said today. You were born into Adam. You got a name, an earthly name. All of us did. You were born into Adam. But the question is, are you born into Christ? Have you been born into Christ? Do you know that grace, that life-changing, transforming grace that takes a sinner, makes him clean, forgives him, and dwells him, and changes him from within? A man like Peter. A man that would walk away from his lucrative fishing business and follow a preacher who he believed had the words of eternal life, and he was right. Let's meditate on those thoughts as we partake of this communion table. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the examples you give us of godly men, godly women in Scripture that we can look at and know that our God works in the lives of just normal, flawed people. We just praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.